This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello there and welcome to the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The very best bits of today's show. It is a Thursday, 29th of December. What have we got for you today? Well, one of our big talking points today was... Have you ever lied on your CV? Because one congressman in the United States has been exposed for doing just that. We're going to get the details and we'll give you the results of our Instagram poll. What else have we got? The economist Jean Walters from Emirates NBD joins us in the studio. China is opening up. Quarantine is gone for returning Chinese passengers. However, a lot of countries... Italy, the United States and others are imposing restrictions on Chinese visitors arriving in terms of COVID and COVID testing. Next up, we've got Samir Lakhani. Great interview with him. IPO boom, of course, in the UAE and the Gulf this year. But can it be sustained in 2023? We'll get Samir's thoughts on that. And finally, you don't want to miss this one. The economics of fireworks, the finance of fireworks. Tony Samuel is technical director of a company called Flash Art in Dubai. They do a lot of the big fireworks work displays here and he says it can cost up to 30 million dirhams for a record-breaking firework display in Dubai and because of supply chain constraints the price of fireworks has doubled in the UAE over the past two years. All that to come first up though let's dive straight into our lying congressman. Where we're talking about lying. Yeah, the curious case of George Santos. This is the would-be American politician. What's the deal? Um, He has been found to... Well, he's not calling it lying. He's calling it embellishing. um, To have been slightly less than truthful on his... What the Americans would call a resume. Um... New York Times and now several other newspapers have dug into it. Uh, He said that he went to a college in New York um, where he didn't actually uh, graduate from college. Um, He said he worked at Goldman Sachs and at Citigroup. Um, However, as he's told the New York Post, he never worked directly for either of them. He called it a poor choice of words. He actually worked at a different company um, that did business with both of the big Wall Street firms. Um, He has come out swinging and defending himself. He needs to still be sworn into Congress, um, but he is, um, I think they call it a congressman-elect. He is a Republican. This is George Santos defending himself. Did I embellish my resume? Yes, I did. And I'm sorry. And it shouldn't be done. I'm still the same guy. I'm not a fraud. I'm not a cartoon character. I'm not some mythical creature that was invented. I'm no Russian puppet. This will not deter me from being an effective member of the United States Congress in the 118th session. Yeah, as you can imagine, he's giving a number of interviews, as he said to the New York Post. Look, I campaigned about people's concerns and those are the promises I'll deliver on and didn't campaign on my resume is what he's saying to people. Um, Others arguing that maybe embellishing on your resume, um, would suggest that that wouldn't make you a good congressman. I I would agree. I would think that that's it. I mean, it's not the, the worst crime in the world. You know, you're not drowning puppies. But it's fraud, essentially, isn't it? If you're embellishing your CV, that, that is fraud. You're, even if he's not used it for his application to be a congressman, if you've done it in the past, it, it's fraudulent activity, saying you worked at Starbucks when you didn't. Well, it's also very common activity. So 
About a week and a half ago, a company called Standout CV in the US came out with a survey that's spoken to just under 2,000 Americans and said, have you relied on your CV? Um, over half said, yeah, I have, at least once. Um, 50, and it's very much in line with Mr. Santos. The most common lies, the most common lie was previous work experience. 55%. Uh, 43% lied about skills. 41%, again, uh, like Mr. Santos, um, did about their college degree or the equivalent. Uh, just under 40% personal details, such as your age, your name, or your location. Uh, salary information um, and references and the ability to use certain software were other things um, that people had lied about. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because where is, and it's like the um, Elizabeth Holmes trial, where, you know, part of her defense was in Silicon Valley, you go out to raise money by telling people that you can do what you're doing. You don't say to them, we're not sure if it's going to work or not, but could you give us a trillion dollars anyway? You know, you you talk yourself up until you can deliver. Um, I'd argue that a CV isn't quite the same thing. (laughs) But where is the difference between saying in... I don't know, in an internship that you did X and Y when really you made the coffee. There's quite a big difference, actually. I'll just correct myself between that and saying you've got a college degree that you don't. Yes, exactly. Putting the best version of yourself forward is fine. So I worked at Goldman Sachs um, and I advised on several multi-billion dollar deals when, in fact, you were an intern who was doing the photocopying. You know, Technically, you did work on several multi-billion dollar deals. That's embellishment. You just stapled them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But, but, you know, that, but you did work on them and that's fine. That's embellishment. Yeah. But if you weren't working at Goldman Sachs, you were actually working at Shake Shack and delivered burgers to Goldman Sachs and claimed you worked at Goldman Sachs. That's not embellishment. That's just making it up. We've got an Instagram poll going, which producer Isa has put up. And uh, we're asking exactly the same question. Have you ever lied on your CV? 57% of Dubai Eye listeners say yes. Wow. More than half. It's exactly the same as that survey. I expected it to be maybe one in ten, maybe one in five. I didn't expect it to be a majority. I genuinely believe I've never done it. Um, Do you, I'm ha- so I'm going through the thought process in my head and I've dug up my ro- most recent CV, which is from 2016, oh, which God. is when I was coming back here, <laughs> um, to think, have I or haven't I? Um, being a little economical with the truth. I once got, <laughs> I got a B when I was 15 years old in accounting in my GCSEs. Other than that, um, other than that, I didn't. Other than that, I got A's. And so I was, I thought, have I ever just thought, I did six subjects, five of them were A's, one of them was a B. I might just, I was only 15, I might just, but my CV doesn't go back that far. Yeah, but that's... Um, and I'd like to say that I didn't. But here's the thing. George Santos, you're, you're running for Congress. Someone's going to check these things. Yes. I, I mentioned earlier to you, if you were listening, when I, the, the last time I really had, you know, a, a applied for a job and got one, was 15 years ago when I joined Bloomberg in London from Dubai Eye. And boy, did they go through absolutely everything. It was probably before LinkedIn. So it was a CV. And I did quite a lot of freelance work. And, and just to recap, I mentioned to you earlier, after about four months, HR came to me and said, look, we've got this period between April and September, and we don't know what you were doing. You've got to account for it, or else you will lose your job. Wow. And I was freelance, and I did, and it wasn't an issue. And I think I had to phone someone and say, and they said, it doesn't matter if you're doing nothing, but if you were doing nothing, 
we need to know you were doing nothing, or if you're doing something, we need to know what that something is. And I was freelancing, so you're always doing something. So I got, I found a, found a friend, probably you. I don't know. <laughs> I said, was I freelancing here and there? But the point is they checked everything. And four or five months after my employment, they were still checking it. I suspect most companies are not that thorough. But didn't you meet a guy? I did. I've met a CV checker before at a party. And in fact, I've messaged the person whose party it was. to describe. <laughs> I met a bloke. He did X. He told me why. He was a New Zealander um, to see if I can track down who he was. And we'll try and get him on the on the show this morning. I met him at a barbecue. Um, who was engaged here um, by a firm to check CVs. And that's what, that's what his company did it checked um, backgrounds so it absolutely does happen Abel Salem has messaged in and said the other 43% are lying now <laughs> well done Abel Salem I like that I've certainly made myself sound a bit more interesting with hobbies and things like that which I don't think counts no it doesn't I'm trying to think I, uh, I again I, I might I, have claimed to have used Excel when really I only learnt how to make graphs in Excel three hours before I had an essay due in the other month yeah there's that um I, I probably when I, when I freelanced for the Financial Times, it was only for about six months. I probably bigged it up to be more than it was. Yeah, I, but but that is embellishment. I, I, I did work for them. You know, I, I, <laughs> um, you've I'm, got some bylines. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's, you Google it; it's there. So no, maybe we should though. Clearly, we're missing a trick here, Brandy. Imagine where our careers would be now. <laughs> We'd be Richard Quest <laughs> or Christian Anampour if we'd lied on our CV. Everyone's doing it, so why can't we? It's a question. But he does sound, I don't know, does he sound sorry to you or does he sound defiant? No, he sounds defiant. But I guess, you know, it's, oh, you know, deny, 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 isn't it? It's the, um, you know, it's the mantra for people who take performance enhancing um, pharmaceuticals when they're in athletics. Deny, deny, deny. He's not denying. He's just embellishing. He's just saying it doesn't matter. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Delighted to be joined in the studio by the economist from Emirates MBD, Jean Walters. Jean, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Morning. Going to look at what it means for Dubai Eye listeners, Dubai One viewers, and their businesses in 2022 here in the UAE. We'll get Jean's thoughts in a second. First of all, let's hear from Professor Dolly Yang. He's a China COVID expert, and he says after the scrapping of quarantine for passengers returning to China, there is no going back. China has really embraced an entirely different strategy with gusto, with the same zeal that they pursued zero COVID. The criticism of the current approach is the authorities had time to prepare. They could have educated the public. So, Jean, let's look at what it means for the global economy and for us. First of all, the bigger picture view for the global economy. China reopening, so it seems, ditching its zero COVID policy. From an economic perspective, how significant is that? So I think it is uh, really quite significant. Uh, I think we have to think about the short term and then the longer term impacts of that. So in the short term, unfortunately for China, we're going to see some um, real uh, significant pain. Uh, Obviously, we've had some uh, reports from Bloomberg suggesting that up to 37 million people could be infected every day in China at present. And with that kind of scale of infections, you are going to see, unfortunately, large-scale um, 
uh, factory closures potentially a drop in output and of course people are not going to be going out and spending um, their hard earned income and in fact even those people who aren't currently ill or aren't currently looking after uh, ill relatives um, may still not feel um, that they want to go out and expose themselves and some information that we've had from the People's Bank of China um, they recently released data on um, employment sentiments and income sentiments and both of those survey measures were measuring at uh, relatively low levels and so there just seems to be a weakness in confidence really at least for the short term but when we then look to the longer term obviously uh, once China can get over this sort of short-term dip possibly uh, in the second half of next year we should see demand uh, roaring back hopefully um, and then output and consumption sort of returning to more normal levels. And that will um, support the the wider global economy as well. What about for us here in the UAE? China and India normally flip-flop between being our biggest trading partners. I'm looking about this radio TV studio. I don't know what percentage of the cameras and the lights and the screens and the mixing desks were made in China. I suspect it's quite a high proportion. What does it mean for us in the Emirates? Um, yeah, so I think uh, China and India are definitely some of our largest trading partners in the UAE. And um, obviously, you know, the, it, there might be significant supply chain knock-ons again in the short term, similar to what we saw at the start of COVID in 2020, when factories are shut, uh, we struggle to maintain um, those supply chains working properly. And so you might still see an, another issue with that coming again if if um, if factories are having to shut down and output is being um, being curtailed, so that's definitely an issue for us here. What about the global economy? And again, what it means for us here in the UAE, Brandy? You were reading one doom and gloom report earlier this week. Yeah, indeed. The Centre for Economics and Business Research coming out with their 2023 forecast and basically saying uh, that they think a recession, a global recession next year, is likely, and pointing the finger at higher interest rates, saying the cost of using them to bring down inflation uh, is poorer growth, poorer outlook. Jean, your thoughts? Uh, so I think that's that's 100% correct. Uh, we have seen uh, immense interest rate hikes in the last year. Um, and unfortunately, we expect that there, sh- there will still be further hikes into 2023. For, for the US and um, the Eurozone, um, and to some extent, the UK, there's glimmers of hope that we've now seen the peak of uh, inflation, um, which will hopefully give policymakers a little bit more room in the coming year. But certainly um, our expectation is that the ECB and the Bank of England are going to have to hike rates by a further 1% in the coming year. The Fed, they themselves have said that they're going to hike rates, their um, dot plot, which is the um, forecast that that their their own um, uh, monetary policy committee members produce have got rates, uh, you know, above five percent, around five point two five percent. Might they be bluffing? Didn't you read a report a while ago, Brandy Scott, that said the Fed has to say they're going to raise interest rates, but actually they might not. I was no, I was having a, a chat um, with a broker, actually, well, a trader, technically. Um, who was saying that he didn't think, and this was just a personal opinion, that it was going to go as, as, as high interest rate rises as a lot of people predicted. And he pointed out that part of the Fed's 
job is to cool the economy, isn't it? That's one of the reasons that it's, it's raising interest rates. Um, and so the rhetoric has to be hawkish um, in order to, to rein in activity. What do you think, Sean? Oh, I think that's that's correct. Um, so the the Fed uh, is going to be very keen to to make sure that we don't have this wage price spiral that you hear about, where you know um, higher inflation leads to higher inflation expectations, which then feeds into wages, which again feeds into inflation. Uh, and so the Fed is going to be talking tough um, because they they don't want to see that happen. And unfortunately, the labor market has been the one area that the U.S. economy has remained incredibly resilient. And so they're going to be very keen to make sure that the labor market starts to cool. um, And part of that might be uh, this incredibly tough rhetoric. Uh, Finally, a word on what all of this means for oil, not just China opening up, but of course, the situation or the war in Ukraine and so many other issues to do with Russian oil. What are you at Emirates MBD factoring in for an oil price for 2023? So we're expecting over 2023 that on average the oil price should be around $105 per barrel. Um, And I think to some extent we're more concerned about the supply side um, than the demand side at at this point. But a lot of it will be um, a case of wait and see what happens with China going forward into next year. And in terms of Russian oil and the Russian administration saying this week, we will not supply oil to anyone who complies with the G7 price cap at around about 60-ish dollars a barrel. What do we think about that? I was thinking about this and thought, well, hang on, what about India? Big buyer of Russian oil, and so we'll keep on buying Russian oil. In, in some senses, India has little choice but to comply with that because most of the oil tankers are European and the insurance companies are European. Where, where does that leave us? So... Uh Russia has obviously come out and said that they're not going to supply oil to anybody who purchases um, uh, oil below $60 a barrel. But in fact, um, the bulk of Russian oil exports at the moment are priced below that cap. So it's not currently biting. I think the other thing to really think about is um, there is apparently a special exemption in this that has these rules that have come out of Russia. So Vladimir Putin has the potential to sort of give people an exemption. And the speculation might be that, you know, uh, he will continue to sell to certain countries. Jean, Um, we'll have to leave it there. Fascinating conversation. Thanks very much indeed for joining us in the studio. That's the voice of Jean Walters, economist at Emirates MPD. Appreciate your time. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. Let's take stock of how much money the IPO uh, market has made globally this year. New report out from EFGMS puts it at over $90 billion, and around 12% of that comes from so very pleased to be joined in the studio by Samir Lakani, Managing Director of Global Capital Partners. Samir, it's lovely to see you. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. And a treat to actually have you in in person because uh, you are one of those who are at your desks earlier than we are. Yes, I am. But nothing's going on on the 30th, so we're fine. <laughs> so let's look at what has gone on, though, during the year. The CFG Hermes report um, puts us as not the biggest slice, but a slice nonetheless of of global IPO activity. Can you put that in context for me? Because it hasn't been a big year globally for IPOs overall, has it? No, it hasn't. Uh, If you look at countries like the United States, uh, funds raised have been down an astonishing 94%. 
even in markets like India, which have done well secondary in, in the secondary sector, uh, the monies raised have been down 50%. In that context, uh, UAE, I think, accounted for four of the top 10 IPOs that were raised this year. Uh, Diwa was one of the largest, uh, followed closely behind by Buruj, uh, Americana, and uh, and uh, uh, and there was one more, I think, Talim, Talim, right? Um, so we've done uh, we've done relatively well, and it comes off an exceptionally good year that we had last year. Uh, last year we raised uh, uh, eleven billion dollars. This year it's it's been uh, increased by 60 percent. Uh, so we're we're about twelve percent of what the overall markets raised globally. That's in terms of the monies raised, in terms of subscriptions. It's more than twice that. Why is the subscriptions, and they're the oversubscriptions, aren't they? Why are they Correct. important? What does that tell us? It's a function of liquidity. It's a function of the fact that there is a lot of investor interest. Yes, there is some concern that has been expressed about uh, the leveraging that goes on over here. Uh, but uh, the, the fact that there's a lot of money sloshing around in the marketplace over here, particularly in the retail sector, indicates that we have a lot of appetite for these kind of IPOs. Talk to me about the leverage situation. How different are we from, from more established markets? Well, in the U.S., uh, in the U.S., the SEC typically allows 50% margin. Uh, that's the case in most developed markets, but there are ways around that in, in those markets as well. Over here, they are they have put in uh, constraints, they have put in uh, uh, parameters to limit the amount of leverage. Uh, just like any other market, there are ways that, that you can get around it. I think that, that is a concern, but what needs to be focused on is the fact that it's been a while since we've seen this kind of interest in the local markets, uh, in terms of the local capital markets, and uh, uh, we're seeing that spill, in, spill over into the secondary market as well, right? So, for example, we've had Empower as an IPO, but uh, its close competitor, Tabrid, has done more than 20% in terms of secondary market performance this year. Uh, we're starting to see that spill over into all uh, all kinds of sectors. Uh, there's, there's a heavy emphasis in the UAE about real estate. EMAR, for example, is up more than 20% this year. And we're seeing that more and more as activity spills into the secondary market. Is that a halo effect from the publicity around the IPOs? Is that just because there is more money in the markets, more liquidity? Or is it more international investors um, getting involved now that we, we have the size, we're it's, getting the size? It's, it's, I think, all of the above. International investors are definitely coming into the market. We can see that with the, with the kind of foreign ownership limits that have been raised. Uh, with the kind of uh, foreign institutional investor monies that have come in. But really, for any capital market to develop, there is no substitute for local investors. And we have seen some rocky periods in the past, as far as the DFM is concerned. Uh, we've seen some delistings, some high-profile delistings, and some uh, sort of, I would say almost the word cynicism uh, about about the markets and and how they perform. Uh, that has changed. There's been a sea shift uh, in the last year and a half. Uh, a lot more, a lot more 
light has been shined upon. Uh, there's a lot more information available now. The, the, the regulatory authorities are doing their bit to get the information out there. We're having, I think, an, uh, an IPO summit in early in, or in the end of January. So, so it's, it's part of in information dissemination. It's part of international investments. But it's also part of the fact that we're getting to the heart of fundamental investing, which is about dividends. I know that sounds boring. I know that's something that has not been talked about for the last 20 years, but we're seeing a return to first principles and uh, the interest that is coming from institutional as well as retail investors is reflecting that. Let's talk about the aftermarket, the the secondary market performance of these companies. One of our headlines this morning is Lubereft, the Saudi Aramco refining unit um, that listed yesterday and the share price slumped. Are we just too used to things always going up on on debut that Lubereft and some of the others that have, have dropped have come as a bit of a shock? It's been a tough year for the markets globally, right? Uh, for IPOs that have gone down this year, uh, we only need to look at the West and the FANG stocks. I mean, the top five stocks in the S&P 500 are down more than 40%. I think we've, we've talked about Tesla and Amazon and all of that stuff. It's been a tough year. There is a risk that comes with investing in IPOs. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but... Investing in the capital markets, just like investing in, in general, it's, it's, it's a long-term game, right? And uh, uh, you have to be patient. Uh, and, and some of these stocks are boring in terms of the businesses that they, that they do. Uh, they're not uh, groundbreaking in terms of technology. But they're solid cash-generating returns. And that's, I think, the environment that we're in right now. We've had it more than a decade plus of zero interest rates. Uh, and now with interest rates at four, four and a half percent, you need a higher hurdle, uh, both in terms of cash and in terms of performance for investors to get excited by. And that's coming from the boring sector, the boring <laughs> sectors. You make a good point, and we've just got one minute left with you. As interest rates rise, so does the payoff that you get, not just for keeping money in a bank account, but fixed term deposits and the rest of it. What happens to our dividend bearing stocks when there are other alternatives for a safish return? Okay, so so the cost of capital has gone up, right? Uh, when you have interest rates at 1%, the present value of $100 10 years from now is 91. When it's 5%, the present value is $60. So you're, the fact that you're seeing these dividend companies, these dividend-oriented companies that are giving these kind of returns, is meaning is implying that investors are having a shorter-term horizon to risk. Uh, we're not going to be so uh, patient with loss-bearing companies as we were in the past. We've seen, for example, in 2009 to 2022, the S&P rose sevenfold. But also between 1965 and 1982, the S&P did nothing, right? So I think we're in that period where dividends will start to outperform. 
Samela Kani, unfortunately, we do have to leave it there this morning. Managing Director of Global Capital Partners in the studio with us this morning uh, to talk about that EFG Hermes report and the performance of Lubria. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. We're looking at the finance of fireworks. Baby, you're a We are talking this morning to Tony Samuel, his technical director at Flash Art Dubai. They are the people who did all of the expert fireworks shows. Uh, Tony, good morning. It's lovely to speak to you. Good morning, Brandy. And uh, good morning to your listeners as well. We're looking forward to talking about the money factor with fireworks. What determines how expensive a fireworks show is going to be? Is it the amount of fireworks? Is it the logistics of wiring up a tall tower? How do you calculate it? Well, um, the cost of the fireworks has has changed a lot recently um, because of COVID and particularly in the last six months because of uh, goings on in Ukraine. Um, The cost of fireworks is, uh, so for example, one large firework that you see bursting in the sky um, will cost us 100 dirhams and uh, it used to be 50 dirhams two years ago. Now the supply chain, every aspect of the supply chain, the costs have doubled in the last two years. Um, yes, it's, uh, it's, it's a big factor. Uh, so for example, a firework display, uh, 20% of the cost will be on fireworks and 40-50% will be on logistics. What has driven up the cost of, of fireworks so dramatically? It's all about logistics, really. Now, um, the, the, the cost of shipping a container, for example, we, we buy all of our fireworks from perhaps 50% from China, 25% from Italy, 25% from Spain. Now, the cost of shipping from from Europe is, is for example, $75,000 for one container, just for the shipping. The contents of the container are another $75,000. Um, from China, uh, shipping a container will be $30,000. Everything that's coming from east to west is half the price. Everything that's going west to east is is, is double the price of, of that. And there's nothing really coming out of Europe globally, of course, as you know. Uh, everything is coming from, from China and Vietnam. But have the uh, the COVID restrictions, factory closures, etc., in China affected your ability to get those fireworks? Things are always prob- problematic coming from China, which is why why we look to to Europe a bit more. Things are more reliable. There's there's more regulations, you know, which which we can deal with more easily. And now you you can order some fireworks from China, and everything's fine. Everything's fine until the last minute when it's not fine, and uh, and, and then and then you've got a three month delay. We're always planning six months ahead because it takes so long to import our fireworks. And uh, we, we find Europe is, is more reliable in getting these things. But the costs, costs are, are, are far, far, far greater, of course. So what kind of money are we talking for a, a big display here in Dubai? So, so there's sort of four categories. We, we have the small sort of wedding and uh, small hotel displays in and around the palm. And uh, along the coast, you're looking at between 50 and 150,000 dirhams for, for an average firework display. Uh, we do about 100 firework displays a year. And, uh, and then you move, you move up a step to the sort of corporate level where, where we're looking at between 300 and 700,000 dirhams for, for a three to five minute display. And then the, the, the national displays, uh, such as New Year's Eve and uh, 
and National Day, where you're looking between 300 and 700,000 dirhams for a display. And then, of course, we, we have the global events, which, which happen occasionally, not, not, not too often. And New Year's Eve displays, some of the big ones. I can't really talk about uh, specific contracts, but, uh, you know, some of them three to nine million dirhams. And then occasionally, every three or four years, you're looking at the display between 25 and 30 million dirhams. Wow. And how long do some of those big displays take to set up? If you are fireworking up a building, for example, a, a tall tower, what are the logistics involved in that? So, so there'll be nine months of planning and three months of on-site operations. So, for example, a very tall building in, in Dubai will we'll, we'll, we'll perhaps have 60 people for three months. And uh, there, there was a particular display back in 2014, which was one of the biggest in the world, which, which had 300 people for three months on site. How far in advance can you actually put the fireworks out, though? What's the, the rule of thumb for that? Well, this, this is the big thing. This, 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 is, this is what makes us efficient. So, so we, we have a trade-off between efficiency, proficiency and, and safety, of course. Now... Putting a firework out is the safest place to have a firework. When, when it's in the place of its of, of its of its um, where we're supposed to deploy it, it is safe because if there's an accident, of course, the firework will simply deploy into the sky and do, do what it's supposed to do. Whereas when it's in storage, you have a mass, you have a bulk of fireworks, which is a real hazard. So we always try to get the fireworks to site and then into the place of intended discharge, which, which is, of course, the safest, safest place for it. And but the, the, the authorities here are, you know, they're getting much better. They're very helpful nowadays. But yeah, we, we try not to keep storage uh, a, a big factor. We, we try to get them out onto the building, into, onto the barge, onto the pontoon, onto the beach, and then it's, everything's safe. We've got 30 seconds left with you. So very quickly, Tony, how much a threat are drone displays to your industry, which are coming more popular, the lighter drones? Yeah. Yes, yeah. We, we, we're not really too bothered about that. There's an intrinsic feeling that you feel on your heart, the, the percussive effect, the smell, the burst, you know, um, you know, fireworks are, are there's something that happens here compared to drones. Dr drones, drones, are, you know, uh, the cost of drones as well is, is far, far higher than fireworks. For example, to, to send one drone up into the sky that you see, perhaps two, three thousand drones you'll see, each one will be two, three hundred dollars. And compared to fireworks, uh, this is a very, very high cost. And uh, the environmental, environmental impact of drones as well is, 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 is a big issue. But the, the amount of energy required to send a drone of swarm, a swarm of drones into the sky is, is phenomenal. Tony Samuel is Technical Director at Flash Art Dubai, speaking to us about the cost of fireworks this morning. Thank you very much for your time. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.